Right. Well, how is our prayer life? As we, we think about it, what fuels our prayer life? What is it that, that brings you to the throne of grace? What is it that brings you to God to speak to Him? And I think as, as we see Scripture all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout especially the New Testament, I think what we see is that desire fuels our prayer. Desire for God, time to be spent with Him, and our desire for God, I believe, fuels our fervent prayer. And I want to begin this morning by, by building upon two foundational truths or two primary truths as it relates to prayer. And all over Scripture, I believe, what we see is the first thing, the first primary truth is that desire for God is the heart of prayer. Desire for God to spend time with Him, to, to get to know Him better, to be able to communicate with Him, just like you communicate with a family member or a friend or a spouse that you want to draw closer to. It's that desire to be with them, to communicate to, with them. I think that's the heart of our prayer. I want you to listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher back in the Great Awakening, and he wrote a book called Religious Affections. And this is what he said, a person who has a knowledge of doctrine and theology only without religious affection has never engaged in true religion. I am bold in saying this, but I believe that no one ever seeks salvation. No one ever cries for wisdom. No one ever wrestles with God. No one ever kneels with a heart or kneels in prayer with a heart that remains unaffected. In a word, there is never, never any great achievement by the things of religion without a heart that is deeply affected by those Things. And when he's talking about religion, I don't think he's talking about religion in the sense that we think about religion. <clears throat> I think Jonathan Edwards was speaking in terms of time with God, our affection for God. And he says, no one ever seeks God, no one ever kneels in prayer without being unaffected by that relationship. So the heart of prayer. Last week, we heard that we pray because we need God. I mean, think about it. Without God, what can we truly accomplish? Nothing, at least nothing of any eternal value. So we pray because we need God, and as the disciples asked Jesus, please, teach us to pray. They knew that they needed God in order for them to fulfill the mission that God had given them. So we need God, but that's not the only reason we pray. I think we pray because we realize that we we have a desire for God, or because we have that desire for God. And this week, I want us to look at that desire. Do we really want Him? And I, I don't think our prayer lives can really survive with that intimate desire to get to know God better. Because otherwise, it's like starting a new habit. It's like doing anything else. After a while, it may lo- we may lose interest in it and go on to something else. 
But if our prayer life is fueled by that desire for God, I believe it will continue and it will go on. So the first thing is heart. Desire for God is the heart of prayer. And the second thing, I think, is desire for God is the secret to prayer. Desire for God is the secret to prayer. And what, what, what I mean by that is, have you ever tasted a dish that someone made, and or maybe something that you both follow the same recipe, and theirs just came out spectacular. It was like awesome. Uh, if it was something they baked, it melts in your mouth. It was moist. The flavor was just awesome, and you did it, and it was just like, oh um. And you, what do you, what do you ask them? What is your, what's your secret? Well, I just followed the recipe. No, you could not have. There's got to be something that you did. And, and really, what I think what often makes the difference is a person's heart and passion for cooking. They just have that touch that they put into it. And so when we look at prayer in the New Testament, when we look at the, the, the answers to prayer that the early church received and the disciples of Jesus, and we might ask, what was their secret? What is it that they did that, that we're not doing today? You know what I think it is? They had a desire for God. They had a heart for God that these uh, couple of thousand years later, we've maybe lost some of that desire for God, because we maybe not realize we need him as much. And maybe we've lost touch with the very God that sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place. And maybe we've become so routine in our religion, so to speak, that we've lost the heart for God and that relationship. Uh, now, the following may be an oversimplification. Got a couple of blanks. Next, but I think as we look at this, as we see the picture of prayer, I think a couple of steps in order to revitalize, revolutionize, and to gain that heart for prayer, the first step, I think, is this. If we make our wants God's wants, if we make our wants, if what we want the closer we get drawn to God, then what we want becomes what God wants. As a matter of fact, that's what Scripture bears that out. And I think also what we see in relationships, when, when our desires are united with another person's desires, when you both want the same thing with a passion, it tends to draw you together and unify you. Isn't that true? When a, when, a, when a couple, when friends have the same passion for something, it, and it, even if total strangers, and you find that you've got the same passion, and you've got the same want and the same desire, what happens? You get together, you start talking about it, and it's like, oh my, where have you been all my life? And, and it's all of a sudden, it's this same desire your same wants bring you closer together. And I think we see the same thing in our relationship with God. The closer we come and get to him, the more, our, the more his wants become our wants, the closer we get drawn to him. And the second thing is 
Then you ask whatever you want. <laughs> I told you it was oversimplified, but think about it. The, what we see about prayer in the New Testament. Jesus says, why don't you have? Because you don't ask. And then he gave this audacious promise. He said, "What? ask whatever you want, and you will what? You will receive it. So make your wants God's wants. Make what, make what God wants the same thing as what you want. And then what follows is, ask whatever you want, and you'll get it. Now, like I said, that's an oversimplification. But as we think about that, because what we want, if what we want is what God wants, we're going to pray for what God wants. And then we're going to get what God says we need. Because, all, because very often our needs and our wants are not necessarily in the same ballpark. So what we need to ask God to do is ask our wants and our desires and our needs to be welded together, to become one. And that's where I think we're going to begin to see God move in our life when prayer becomes the bedrock, the foundation of everything we do. So it's not, you know what, we do church, and we go through, we have a system, and we do it this way, and that's what we rely upon. We rely upon the system. But what if we were like the early believers? They relied upon prayer. They didn't get together and start their meetings in prayer and end their meetings in prayer. They got together to pray. And stuff happened while they were there to gather. So I, I think if we realize that prayer ought to be the foundation of everything we do and everything else grows out from there, we're going to see a difference. Now let's take a look at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. We started last week. We looked at Luke, chap, uh, Luke 11, verse 1, where the disciples asked him to teach us to pray. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, Jesus, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, some of you may not recognize this as the Lord's Prayer. What we recognize as the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew 6. What Luke records is a little bit different from what Matthew records. And so we might ask ourselves, well, Luke, why didn't you take better notes? Well, I, I think what we see here, because there are things that, matter of fact, uh, what Matthew, in Matthew 6, Matthew 6 ends with something else. Uh, but deliver us from the evil one, for, for yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Luke leaves that out. Some of the earlier manuscripts actually leave that out as well. Uh, it's, not, it's not there. But what I think we see is, Luke was not so specific as to record the exact same words because Jesus never meant for us to pray those exact words. Because when, when Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the heathen. 
who say the same things over and over and over and over again and expect their prayer to be heard. I think what Jesus was doing was Jesus was giving an example. That's why I, I prefer to call this Jesus' model prayer rather than the Lord's prayer. So we, we follow it as a model, and so when we come to him, what do we ask? So when we come to God, when, our, when we have a desire for God, as a matter of fact, uh, when, we, when we look at that song that we, we, we just sang, Our beloved Father, please come down and meet us. We're waiting on your touch. But as we go to, I think it's the chorus, we don't want anything but you. We saw that last week. When we come to the point where it's not about our 401k, it's not about our sports team, it's not about anything else, but we want God. We want Jesus more than anything else. That is going to revolutionize our life. Our beloved Jesus, we just want to see you in the glory of your light. Earthly things don't matter. They just fade and shatter when we're touched by love divine. And so I think what we see there is the heart for prayer, the heart that fuels our prayer. So as we look at this, we go into four primary requests that we see in this prayer of Jesus. Some say it's five. What we're going to do is we'll take the first two and we're going to put them together. So four primary requests is what we will look at this morning. And the first thing that I see here is that Jesus says we are to ask God for his glory. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now let's not miss the point here as we see Jesus begin this prayer. For many years, I really looked at this and thought that what Jesus, the way Jesus started his prayer was a declaration of the glory of God. Kind of like, God, you're great, you're holy, then we ask you for what you want. But as the more I studied this, I realized that this whole prayer is an ask. Because as we look at the language of the Greek, as we look at the language that is here, the verb is passive. And as we look at when he's, and another word for hollow that we see in the New Testament is the word sanctify. And there are two usages for the term sanctification. One is to make something holy, to be set, to set apart, to make something holy. As a matter of fact, we are in the process, as we become more like Jesus, we are in the process of being made more holy. The closer we get to Jesus, the holier we become. Sanctification is also a process. The New Testament bears that out. And the other aspect of sanctification is to, be, to treat something as holy. It's already holy. God is already holy. There's no room for God to be more holy because God is holy. And so I think it's that second usage that we see here and the passive verb where literally what Jesus was saying here is rather 
God, help us to treat your name as holy. Let your name be treated as holy. It's a request for God to hallow, to hallow his name. And that's also a request. And so what we, we're literally hearing here is Jesus saying, God, let the world treat you as holy. Let the world see you as holy. Let the world see you as who you are. Let your name be glorified. Let your name be treated as holy. I don't know how it affects you, but it affects me when I hear someone take the Lord's name in vain. And I think it follows right along with what Jesus prayed. Lord, oh Father, let your name be treated as holy. Hallowed. Let your name be hallowed. And so when we come to God, it is a declaration that God is holy because he is holy. But I think what Jesus is saying is, let us treat God's name as holy. Let us realize that he is holy as well. So one of the things, we see some characteristics of God here as well in this prayer. And the first thing that we see is, he is the sovereign father. Because how does Jesus begin his prayer? Father. And we know that he is in control. Your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven as it is on earth. But I want us to think about this. When we call God our Father, think about it, that God the Father calls you his child. If you belong to him. The God who spoke everything into existence, who hung the stars in space, who by the very power of his existence, the Lord Jesus holds everything together. That same God calls you son and calls you daughter. Isn't that a special relationship? That we can look to him and like the New Testament says, cry out, Daddy. Abba, Father. It, it ought to blow our mind. See, that was a foreign concept for the Old Test, uh, in the Old Testament. God was feared, revered, and New Testament, now we have Holy Spirit living within us, and we have a different relationship with the Heavenly Father. So He is our sovereign Father. But second thing that we see is, He is the Holy One. Hallowed be your name. Allow your name to be treated as holy. And I think this kind of reminds us back of Isaiah 6. And what we see in the throne room of heaven, the only attribute of God that's repeated three times, holy, holy, holy. We serve a holy Father. We serve a unique God. Think about it. There is no other God like God. Actually, there are no other gods. So God is uniquely holy, but thirdly, he is also the coming king. He is the coming king. What we see in what Jesus prayed is, your kingdom come. Now, as he is saying this, we understand that as we grow closer to him, 
we grow closer to Jesus Christ, and as he rules and reigns in our hearts, and we, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, that anywhere God is glorified and obeyed and follow, that is within the realm of the kingdom of God. But also we understand that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will return. Ultimately, eventually, he will set foot back upon the earth. The second coming of Jesus Christ. And what will he do at that time? He will begin to rule and reign. And he will be the one. See, now Satan has been given the opportunity to do his best. But one day Jesus is going to say, that's enough. And he will begin to rule and reign. So your kingdom comes. So I think it's looking future as well when Jesus Christ will rule and reign. So the God we serve, the Jesus Christ who is our Savior, he is sovereign, he is holy, and he is coming. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, literally what Jesus is saying we ought to be praying is, God, come and make your name known, God, and come make your reign known. And what are we crying out for that when we do? Our personal Father, who is personal to us, when we say, Father, hallowed be your name. I think what we we see here is that we're praying, God, make yourself known in my life. God, make yourself known in my life. That's our next fill in the blank. God, make yourself known in my life. Life Cause me to treat your name as holy. Because how often during our day do we take God's name in vain? You say, I never take God's name in vain. You bet you do. Because when we talk about God and don't think about what we're saying about God, what have we done? We have used his name without thinking about it. Now, I'm not saying, you know, it's sinful and it's all. But think about it. How were the the early Jews, what were their concept of the name of God? It was so holy, it was not even spoken. But yet, I'm not saying we, individually, here this morning, but some people say, the big man upstairs. Or when we say, oh God, are we using it as an affirmation of him, or are we using it flippantly as an exclamation? Just think about it. The closer we become to him, and as we pray, God, hallowed be your name in my life, so that every time I think of you, Father, every time I mention your name, I'm really just talking to you, or I'm telling someone else about you. So God, how will your name in my life? But the second thing is, how will God's name be known throughout the world? Through whom? Through us. And so I think when we're praying that, we're also praying, God, make yourself known in all the world. God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think what we're also saying is, God, make yourself known in all the world. 
as we're and I see this as a universal dimension of prayer. Because think about it, we've, we've talked about this for the last few weeks. When we see in Revelation what's happening in the throne room of God, what did John the Revelator see? He saw a multitude, a vast multitude that he says could not even be numbered from every tribe, from every language, from every people group. And I think what that's teaching us is that God is going to use us, his mouthpieces, his missionaries, to spread the gospel throughout the entire globe. And so that one day, people who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior are going to come from every country, every part of the globe, from every language, from every tribe, from every people group, And they are the ones, we are the ones who are going to be proclaiming his glory. So God, let your name be known the entire globe. And I think we will be able to truly carry out the Great Commission as we, as God's people, as we, as faith, our faith family, come to God in a heart of prayer, wanting to meet with him day after day, crying out together as our faith family. So, God, make yourself known throughout the world. Let your name be known. Let your name be hallowed. Be sanctified throughout the world. So that's number one, is ask God for his glory. The second thing that I believe we see here is that we can ask God for his gifts. Ask God for his gifts. Give us day by day, give us daily, our daily bread. So why does he ask that? I mean, think about it. There are things we need more than bread. We need water more than food. We need air more than food. But I think Jesus had a reason for including this. Because think back to the Old Testament. Think back to Exodus 16. God had taken his people, the Jews, out of Egypt. And here they are in the wilderness. And they become hungry. And they want food. So we ask ourselves, why were the people hungry? You might think, well, obviously they didn't have food. Well, I think there's a deeper reason. I think they were hungry because God created within them hunger. And we're going to to see that borne out in just a few moments. And so when, when Jesus says, give us day by day your daily bread, I think what we see is it's only God that can satisfy our hunger. It's only God that can satisfy our hunger. And that's why the Israelites in the wilderness were hungry. He caused them to hunger so they would look to him to fill that need. And so what he tells them in Exodus 16, he says, I know you're hungry. So here's what is going to happen. You're going to go to bed and... Or you're going to wake up in the morning, and there's going to be bread, manna. 
You go out and you pick, and he gave them how much to pick. He says, don't pick any more. And he says, you're going to have enough to eat. So they ate their bread. They go to bed without bread for tomorrow. But just like people are, what did some of them do? You remember? They got greedy. God said, pick up one ephah, or I don't remember the exact amount. But they said, we're going to pick up two. We're going to pick up more because we want to make sure we are not hungry. So what happened to it the next morning when they got up? Their little story went to the cupboard and went, went to eat their manna for breakfast. It was, it, was, it said it bred worms and stank. You know, it didn't stink, it stank. <laughs> and so God says, he says, I'm going to give you what you need. Don't rely upon your ingenuity and yourself for what you need. And so what happened was they went to bed with nothing to eat tomorrow. But they got up tomorrow and had plenty to eat because God satisfied their hunger. Not anybody else, not their own ingenuity. God satisfied their hunger. And why did he do that? I think he did it to sustain their faith. I think he did it so that their faith could be sustained in that God took them out of Egypt. And what happened when they got into the wilderness? They complained. They said, if only we had been back in Egypt. You know, we had leeks and garlic and we had you know, all this good food. And you know, it's probably not as good as they remembered because the past is like that. You know, we talk about the good old days. The good old days probably weren't as good as we remember them because we don't remember the hardship of those days. And so God is telling them, God is showing them, I took you out of Egypt because you asked. You're in the wilderness, but I can get you to the promised land. So he sustains their faith to know that they can rely on him. Let's look at the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And, and see that they weren't hungry because they didn't have food. Okay, just bear with me. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So verse 3 said, God says, So I did what to you? So I humbled you. And I did what? I allowed you to hunger fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Matter of fact, that's where they got the name manna. They looked at it and said, what's this? They looked at it and they said, manna. (laughs) So you know what manna means? What's it? (laughs) What's this? And so he said, I fed you with what you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make known to you. God did it. God allowed them to hunger because he had placed with them that hunger so they could come to the point where they realized, God, I'm hungry, and I need you to make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, from the mouth of the Lord. Think about that. He gave us manna. He gave, he gave his people manna, bread, so they would know that he could sustain them, and so he could sustain their faith over and over and over and over again. Now, it kind of makes you wonder, why would he say, you know, give us our daily bread? Well, most of us need less bread, right? 
Now, I think it's because our tendency to become materialistic. Because how many of you last night went to bed wondering if you would starve today? Probably most of us not. Because you probably had enough milk, maybe some cereal, or some eggs. You had something to eat this morning. What that does is, that tends to foster within us a tendency to think that we're sufficient. But what if every morning we woke up, or every night we went to bed, rather, every night we went to bed, and if it were not for God, we would starve? You think that might change our prayer life? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I think what happens is Jesus is teaching his disciples to realize that there is a tendency to become materialistic. There is a tendency to realize that you have all this stuff and you worked hard for it. Not. No matter how hard we work for it, we have to understand God gave us the strength. God gave us the health. God gave us the air to breathe. So give us this day our daily bread. Give us day by day our daily bread. I think what we could paraphrase that and say, God, every day, give us what we need. And, and we fill in the blank, whatever that is. But we live in a daily dependence upon God for that fulfillment. So he's teaching them that he can sustain our faith. And I think prayer brings us back to that realization. What if we got into the habit every day God, meet my needs today. God, provide today for what me, provide me today what I need. Would that not bring us more into a dependence upon what God, only God can provide us? God, provide the opportunities today to share your name with others. God, provide me the opportunity today to grow closer to my family, to grow closer to my, to be, to be a blessing to others. And I think what that will bring us is away from a self-dependence to a God-dependence. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Guys, you have to live in a daily dependence upon your Father, upon your Heavenly Father. Because if you don't, you're going to get caught in the trap of thinking that you did it. And you've got the power, and you can do it. So give us day by day our bread. So first of all, Ask God for his glory. Lord, help us to treat your name as holy. Allow your name to be hallowed in this earth. Secondly, we ask God for his gifts. And everything he gives us is a gift, is it not? All good things come from above, the Bible says. And then thirdly, I think we see here, ask for his grace. Ask for his grace. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. Asking for his grace. And it's by his grace that we're forgiven because it was through his grace that he allowed Jesus Christ to come for us. And it's by grace that we're saved. And when we come to know Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. So we ask for his grace. And when we do so, I think what we see are some elements here when we ask for his grace. First of all, we experience his forgiveness. 
and forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. And so when we say, God, I have sinned against you, God, forgive me of this sin, he promised you'll be forgiven. And he will be justified in forgiving you because Jesus died for our sin. So we experience his forgiveness. So the first thing we see, I think, is we ask for his forgiveness continually and forgive us our sins. Tomorrow when we, or this afternoon, or five minutes from now when we might sin again. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. And the next thing we see is we experience, I think we experience his forgiveness specifically. Because he's not saying, God, forgive us our sin. There's a definite article here in the original. Forgive us our sins. So when I lie or when I have this improper thought or when I treat someone not in love and I ask God, forgive me for I have sinned. So we not only ask him for forgiveness continually, but we receive forgiveness specifically for what we do because we fail him on a regular basis. And then what do we see next in verse 4? Not only do we ask him for forgiveness of our sin, but then what does he say? He says that we are to extend his forgiveness. Extend that forgiveness to others. Since we've received forgiveness, he says, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Extend it to others. And there are so many people who are walking through life, harboring resentment, who have not forgiven someone else. It could be someone that is long gone, and they're harboring that resentment. It could be a parent. It could be someone, anyone. And they have not let go of that hurt, and it's hurting them. It's hurting us. So we need to receive God's forgiveness and then extend it to others. Because as the old saying goes, hurting people hurt people. If we're hurting, there's a good possibility that we might hurt someone else because we're just in a bad mood. So extend that forgiveness. And then fourthly, as we wind this down to a close, as we get to the end of this model prayer, is not only do we ask God for his grace, but we ask God for his guidance. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We need him because he gives protection amidst temptation. And does not God do that? He won't allow us to be tempted above that which we're able. But will the temptation also make a way to escape? God gives us protection in the midst of our temptation. Now, don't think for a moment that the way Jesus said this, that God could possibly lead us into temptation. It's not there, because James, in the, in the book by his name, made that per- perfectly clear. We're not tempted by God. We're tempted when we're driven away by our own lust. You know, we're the ones that do it. 
And I know Satan can tempt us, but it's a very good possibility that we're, we're enticed or drawn to temptation just merely because we are fallen human beings. So God never leads us into temptation, but I think what we see here is that God can give us that protection in the midst of those temptations. Isn't that a, an awesome promise? That no matter what we're being tempted with, it could be food, it could be, uh, it could be of any nature, God is there with us. And God is only a breath away, a prayer away. God help me. God help me. Because what? remember what Nehemiah prayed when, when the king said, Nehemiah, what's wrong? <gasps> God help me to give the right answer because <laughs> I might lose my head. And he breathed the prayer very quickly and then went on. If we're that connected with God, in the midst of that temptation or in the midst of that trial or that, that, that trouble, he's there with us. But also the second thing I, I think we need to understand is he gives perseverance in the middle of a trial. He gives perseverance. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. When, when we have two promises, Jesus gave two promises. He says, in me you will have peace. But in the world, you're going to have tribulation. In me, peace. In the world, tribulation. But he says, no, that I have overcome the world. So what does that allow us to do? In the midst of the temptation, in the midst of the trouble that we're going through in life, if we know that God has overcome it, and he's going to bring us out on the other end, we can get through it. And experience that peace that he says is only supplied in him. In me is peace. In the world is trouble, tribulation, problems. But don't worry, I've overcome the world. (laughs) Awesome, awesome promise. He gives perseverance in the middle of trial. And, And I want to close with this. As we think about this model prayer, our Father... In heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day your daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we, also, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And when we realize that God can give us that perseverance through trial, I'm reminded of the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was in anguish over what he was about to experience, At one point, he said, God, if there's any other way to save these humans, show it to me because I'm all, I'm up for it. But where does he end that that discourse with his heavenly Father? Not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And I think as we can get to that point in life, God, this is horrible, this is... This is bad. But as I'm going through this, God, okay, I give. I give up, and I'll just let you drive the bus. Not my will, but yours be done. Isn't that a hard thing to pray? It's not the natural thing to pray. It's not the typical self-reliant strong person's prayer. (laughs) 
Because for us to say, God, it doesn't matter what I want. What matters is what you want. Because I know that if you get what you want, it'll be ultimately best for me. That's a hard place to be. But it's the only place that will get us out on the other end in the best shape possible. Not my will, but yours be done. So how's our prayer life? What drives your prayer life? If desire for God is the heart of your prayer, and desire for God is the secret to your prayer life, it's what makes your prayer life hum, then I believe that's where you're right where God wants you to be. Yeah, we pray because we need Him. And, and that's fine to understand that and believe that and realize that. But I think we need to get further. I think we need to get to the point where we just, we just want to be with Him. Because there are things we do because we have to, right? But there are also things we do because we want to. But isn't it awesome when we do what we have to because we want to? That's the best place to be. For those of you who love your job, you show up because you have to. But you also show up because you want to. Let's let our prayer life be that way.